The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hello, hello, hello. How you doing, Wednesday nighters? There's three people that are happy on this side. That's good. <laughs> oh, beautiful day, huh, for the most part? Um, thanks for coming out, guys. Uh, let's just pray real quick, and then we'll jump in. Lord, I'm just... Thankful tonight for your grace. Thankful for um, the opportunity, God, to be with my family, to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. And God, it is uh, a joy to open your word. And Lord, I know a lot of us have had a long day and have worked some hours and maybe have been outside or or just uh, are are ready for for the day to be over, God. But I pray that, Lord, you would be here um, working and moving and bringing clarity uh, to our head, to our heart, Lord. And so God, we just want to hear from you tonight. We pray that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. So when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The single greatest threat to you and I as Christians, and I truly believe this, and there are plenty of threats to our faith, to our walk with God. Um, the single greatest threat to us as Christians, I truly believe, is false religion. It's the creeping in of dead, false, hypocritical religion like we see in the Pharisees. Jesus, time and time and time again, warned and warned and warned his disciples. It seemed to be the number one thing that he wanted them to believe and understand was do not be like the Pharisees. Watch out for the dead, hypocritic, fa- hypocritical, false religion of the Pharisees. He was more concerned about the false religion of the Pharisees than he was about the sinful life the prostitute was living, the sinful life the tax collector was living, the sinful life the alcoholic was living. Any of the sins that, that he, he, he uh, found people living in, he was not nearly as concerned and never did he speak out against those sins nearly as much as he did against the false, hypocritic, dead religion that he spoke out against. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So if you guys have your Bibles, um, we'll, we'll revisit that story, by the way. That's uh, if you want to write it down, Matthew 16. Uh, but for now, go to Ecclesiastes. Chapter 5. Let's just read these seven verses together. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. 
To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow, many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. That's what I want to look at tonight. So for those of you that are joining us for the first time, um, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, if you couldn't find it, it's in the Old Testament. It's after Psalms. It's after Proverbs. Um, written by uh, Solomon, who was a king in the kingdom of Israel. Um, he refers to himself many times in the book as the preacher. So if you hear me say, the preacher says, or the, the preacher exclaims, or whatever, then you know it's the writer of the book, okay? But Ecclesiastes, this book has been fantastic. Basically, Ecclesiastes is taking a look at the world that we live in, which, by the way, even though this book was written thousands of years ago, people are still people, and life is still life, and not a lot has changed, believe it or not. Yes, we have cell phones and selfies and smart things and Facebook, whatever, but not a lot has changed, okay? People are still people. So Ecclesiastes is the preacher, Solomon, basically writing down through a raw and unfiltered lens about what he sees in the world, okay? And, and what he sees is not good. Now Solomon, this is, this is not the only book that he wrote. It's a book that he wrote later in life. And he's writing it from this perspective of having lived a lot of life, having experienced a lot of things, have, having done a lot of different things in life. And he's basically sitting down and, and writing what he sees, how he sees things being broken in the world. And it's very raw. It's very raw. So here's what you have to understand to get the book of Ecclesiastes. And I know I've said this every week, but it's super important. Okay, in order to get this book, you have to understand Genesis chapter three. Because what Solomon is doing is he's basically observing the result of what happened in Genesis chapter three. The fact of the matter is, and what Solomon is observing is that sin has affected every single part of the world. Everything in life that you and I experience, the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, the relationships that we're in, the jobs that we work, everything has been tainted, affected, broken by sin. This is foundational truth for the Christian, for the believer. And what Solomon is doing is he's in a very candid, very um, honest, very raw way. He's writing down the observance of this broken and fallen world. And just like water uh, in a lake that spreads with fingers all over the place, it, it, this sin has literally crept into every part of life. It's in our marriages, it's in our jobs, it's in our friendships, it's in our bodies, it's in everything. Sin has affected everything. And what happened in Genesis 3 is this. Um, God and man lived in perfect harmony. Okay, you guys know this. The garden is where God placed man. They walked together. And man was really if you will, at the top of the hill. 
There was nowhere for him to climb. There's nowhere for him to strive to get because he was where God wanted him to be, with God. There was no tension, no anxiety, no insecurity, no frustration. Um, work was not a bad thing. Work was a good thing. Relationship between him and his wife was good. There was no tension. There was no issues because it was the way God intended it to be. He was at the top of the hill, right? And when sin entered the picture and Adam chose to, 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 to listen to himself and his wife ultimately over God, he followed the picture. He fell from that position that God had placed him down below. Okay? And at that moment, when sin entered the picture in Genesis 3, when the fruit was eaten and God cursed man, a disconnect, a brokenness came between man and God. So man went from being at a place of transcendence, a place of peace, a place of joy, a place of purpose um, in the garden to a place now of longing, a place of sickness, a place of having to work by the sweat of your brow with thorns and with thistles, having relationships be burdensome and hard and, and having this longing for more that you can't seem to fill. Water can't satisfy food, can't fill you. There's always something missing. That's what happened in the garden. We went from being where we were supposed to be, doing what we were supposed to be doing, to now living in a state of brokenness. You say, Sam, I know this. This is basic. Okay? But you have to get this to get Ecclesiastes. Because otherwise you read this book and you say, this is depressing. This is no hope for me. But it's not depressing. Because what Solomon is doing is what we should all do. And that is look at the world that we live in, look at the life that we live in, honestly, through the lens of sin. Why is marriage hard? Why are friendships hard? Why is work hard? Why is my body ache and groan? Why is there never enough money, never enough food, never enough water? Why is there disease? Why is there pain, murder, rape, abuse, depression, anxiety? All of these things is because of sin. Because man is not where man was created to be. We are separated from God. As I've said before, we were created of heaven and earth. At the fall, heaven was removed and what was left? Earth. And now we live in the dust, day after day, looking for the dust to quench a thirst that only heaven can. Okay? This is the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. And what he's doing in each chapter is he's, again, looking at every part of life and saying, look how sin has affected this. Look at the vanity of this. Look at the vanity of that. Last week we looked at relationships. We talked about community. We talked about why relationships are hard. Because sin has affected them. Community is hard. Sin is affected. And we've talked about work. We've talked about all of these different things. And tonight, the preacher, Solomon, turns his attention to religion. Okay? To religion. Now, um, there's probably nothing that is more twisted and affected and broken than man's attempt at religion. Okay? Again, we've, we've fallen from the hill. Okay, we've fallen from where we belonged with God, and religion is simply this. Religion is man trying and attempting to get back where he fell from. Okay, why are there billions of people in this world that are religious? And I would actually go so far as to say every human is religious. Every human has some sort of system of worship, whether they worship themselves or a God, whatever it is. Every human worships because every human knows there's something they're trying to get back to. Every human knows they were created for a bigger purpose than themselves, Every human knows that this life cannot be it. So we pick a trail and we try to climb the hill, okay? And every religion is a different person's idea or avenue on how to get back to God. And what the preacher basically does here in these seven verses of chapter five is he shows the vanity and the foolishness of religion, 
Okay? Just simply that. So what I want to do with you guys tonight is I want to I really speak to that. I want to I dive into false religion. And when you hear me say the word religion in a negative context, I'm talking about false religion, okay? Just to clarify that, because you might say, wait, isn't Christianity a religion? And we can get into that. But talking about false religion, talking about um, hypocritical religion, the kind of fer- the pharisaical religion that we saw, the kind of religion that Jesus called out and said to watch out for this, okay? But here's the thing, guys. As we look at these things, as we look at these verses, don't think, oh yeah, man, false religions, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, uh, Hindus, whatever. Don't, don't think to yourself, yeah, those are false religions. They are. But the purpose of tonight isn't for us to sit in here and think, oh yeah, false religion is out there and we're all good in here. Because false religion, believe it or not, is actually more prevalent in the church than anywhere else. We are prone in these walls to false religion. We are prone to believe a wrong gospel. We are prone to approach God in the wrong way, in the wrong terms. So tonight, I don't want you to say, oh, yeah, they're all wrong. I want you to look at yourself tonight, okay? And I'm gonna look at myself tonight, and my prayer is that God will actually work out and expose some of the things that we think we're doing for God, but are really false religion, okay? Some of the things that we think are very pious, very spiritual, but in in, in reality, they're not. So let's jump right in, starting in verse one, and and, (laughs) Um, three points, all of them start with A, so if you're note takers, you'll like this. Uh, point number one uh, is appeasement sacrifices. Okay, this is the first red flag, if you will, of what makes a false religion a false religion. Look at verse one. The preacher says in verse one, he says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So he's talking about the house of God. He's talking about um, the time that you spend with the Lord. Now, a little bit of context. This is Old Testament. This was written in the Old Testament. So before Christ came, in order to meet with God, because of sin, because of the fall, in order to meet with God, you went to what? The temple, or you went to the tabernacle. That was the place where God's presence would dwell. That was the place where sacrifices would be made for your sin, for, for, for the sin of the nation. So he's talking about your time with the Lord. He's talking about religion. He's talking about when you go to seek God, okay? So guard your steps when you go to the house of God. He says, to draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing is evil. So he talks about the sacrifice of fools within this context of religion. Now, sacrifice... Um, I, I want to kind of talk about what that, what that sacrifice of, of fools basically means, Um, as human beings, we seem to have, especially as Christians, we seem to have this, um, we love sacrifice. We like sacrifice. We like the idea of saying, God, I'm gonna give you something in return for something else, okay? Um, The the idea of sacrifice is basically saying, God, I'm I'm going to, to, um, I'm going to sort of barter with you. Um, What the preacher is saying here, okay, the preacher is saying that obedience is actually better than sacrifice, okay? Obedient, now, you might, that might sound familiar f- for you. That comes up multiple times in the Bible where God actually says, I desire obedience over sacrifice. Obedience is more preferred. It's more important to me. And what I wanna talk about uh, on this first point is why is that? Why does God care more about obedience than he does about sacrifice? Now, sacrifice, um, actually, let's do this. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 15, if you guys got your Bibles. And I wanna look at a story really quick um, about just this thing right here. 1 Samuel 15. 
Might be a little louder tonight because I think the kids are on this half of the court. But that's okay. So 1 Samuel 15, uh, verse 20, says this. A little bit of context, by the way. Uh, this is a story about Saul, King Saul. God basically commands King Saul. He says, I want you to... Uh, annihilate to completely wipe out this people group, the Amalekites, for God's purposes, for reasons. He basically tells Saul, this is what I want you to do, okay? He requires of him obedience. He says, here's what I want you to do, Saul. So Saul gets his, his military together. He gets his army together. He goes out. He defeats the Amalekites, okay? So he starts to obey the Lord, but rather than doing what God told him to do, which is to destroy everything that the Amalekites owned, he decides to disobey the Lord, he decides to keep back uh, some of the chief, or some of the chief, some of the best livestock and things like that in order to sacrifice to the Lord. And he decides to keep King Agag as a trophy. So look at verse 20, verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Does that sound familiar? Okay, it's exactly what the preacher is saying in Ecclesiastes. He's saying it is better to obey the Lord than to simply make a sacrifice to him. So behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as of the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And then he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is a turning point in Saul's life as a king. He goes from being the anointed king to being the rejected king, and things go downhill from there pretty quickly. But what I want you to notice about this story is here is King Saul. God has given him a command to do, but he doesn't want to do it. He wants to do what he wants to do. He wants to keep King Agag as a trophy. He wants to uh, keep some of the livestock in order to do a sacrifice unto the Lord. And he comes up to Samuel like, hey, I did it. I obeyed. I, I went and I, 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 I beat them in, in battle and in war and we were triumphant. And Samuel says, no, you didn't. You didn't obey at all. You did what you wanted to do. You didn't do what God had actually asked you to do. But the interesting thing is, is in Samuel's mind, he says, but I sacrificed all of the spoils to the Lord. He says, but yeah, I defeated them. And yeah, okay, so I didn't obey, but I sacrificed all of these, these lambs, all these livestock to the Lord. So in a sense, he's saying, why would God be mad at me? I, I, I sacrificed to him. I worshiped him. And, and Samuel's response, of course, from the Lord is, but God doesn't care about that. He cares that you obey him. The fact is that Saul wanted to do what Saul wanted to do. And he saw sacrificing the livestock as simply a way to get away with what he wanted to do. That is why God cares more about obedience because Saul's heart was not the Lord's. The Lord isn't interested in what you say is his. He's interested in what you actually show him is his. So largely, here's what we do, okay? Largely, we see sacrifice, and I'm not talking about um, slitting the throats of animals. I'm talking about today, okay? We see sacrifice when, when we uh, choose to, to get out of bed and go to church, or we choose to be uh, on a setup crew, or we choose to serve our neighbor, or we choose to love our wife, or whatever it is that, that we feel like we're doing for the Lord. A lot of times, we don't do that because we really love God. 
A lot of times we do that because we're trying to sort of barter with God, okay? And what Solomon is saying is that it is better to obey God than to try to buy off God. It's kind of like the idea of, um, God, I'll give you my 10% if you keep your hands off the 90%, right? Now, some people give their 10% because they're generous and they love the Lord and they want to worship and that's great. Other people, and I've caught myself doing this many times before, give their 10% to the Lord, not out of a joyful, worshipful spirit, but because they're sort of buying God keeping their hands, his hands out of your 90%. Does that make sense? You're basically saying, God, I'm going to give you that, but that way I don't have to worry about what you might want me to do with the rest of this. It's sort of like settling a court case. Okay? I'm going to pay off that person in court because I don't want them to come at me. I don't want them to sue me. So we're going to settle this thing and put it to bed. What Saul was doing here wasn't worship to the Lord. What Saul was doing here was buying off his disobedience. He's saying, God, I will sacrifice this to you so that I can get away ultimately with what I want to do. It's like overdrafts and late fees and bank fees. Now, the companies know that we will do anything to do what we want to do. So, you would think that late fees and overdrafts, you'd think that would correct our behavior, that we would stop overdrafting our account, that we would stop doing these things, but all it really does is say, well, yeah, I'll pay that if I can just continue to live the way I want to live. Yeah, I'll pay that overdraft. Yeah, I'll pay that late fee, whatever it is. I mean, every time I go to Redbox, it's like six bucks because I forget. I mean, I do. It's like five days, and I'm like, oh, no, Redbox, and they're just making bank off of me, but it doesn't really matter. I'm like, well, whatever, you know, like I'll pay that. Ultimately, for, for what false religion is, is false religion isn't worshiping out of an overflow of the heart for the Lord. False religion says, I want to sacrifice because I'm going to sort of do a deal with God. Okay, I'm going to make a deal with God. And, and, and part of the reason we prefer sacrifice over obedience, not only is that we, it gets us off the hook, but it's also, it eases our conscience, Right? False religion does acts of service. False religion does acts that are good, quote unquote, um, to ease its conscience because it knows that it's guilty before God. It's kind of like that restful moment that you have when you know that the dishes have been nagging at you or the, the lawn needs to be mowed and you finally do it and you feel really rested for like two seconds after that because you're like, oh, I don't have to do that for a little while, right? And the dishes, it's like three hours or two hours, right? Or 10 minutes and you gotta do it again. But that feeling of like, I'm gonna do this, but really only so I can stop thinking about it. I think for a lot of Christians, false religion, false religion creeps in, and it looks like, hey, I'm gonna serve the Lord here, I'm gonna do what the Lord asked me, I'm gonna sacrifice, but not because I love him, but because I want 10 minutes of not feeling anxious and guilty about my sin, okay? That's false religion. You ever wonder why people in false religions seem to almost do more than Christians? They're trying to appease their guilt. They're guilty, like we all are. They feel bad about their sin and they're trying to work it off. They're trying to do enough good to where they don't have to feel bad anymore. And God says, I'm not really interested in that. Just like he's not interested in what Saul did. He says, I'm interested that you would obey me, not that you would just simply sacrifice to me. I had a meeting with a friend a few months back that is... um, it was a hard meeting. He's living with his, his girlfriend. He's living in sin. He knows it. I told him, I'm like, dude, what's the deal? Um, it was a hard conversation. And he found a way to justify this relationship because he said, but I need to be there for my son. And I said, so you're choosing to sin in order to justify something. And it was, it was revealing to me because I realized that's religion. 
Religion says, ah, but see, just like Saul, yeah, but I'm doing something good for the Lord and it weighs, it outweighs my bad, right? So even though, yeah, I'm living with this girl and I shouldn't be, I'm there for my son, so that's a good thing, so it weighs it out. God's not tipping the balances. God doesn't want you to sacrifice. And he said, well, I'm willing to sin if it means I can be there for my son. God doesn't work that way. God doesn't work that way. God wants you to obey him. Okay, and here's the part. That, that really matters, okay? When, when you choose to just simply try to appease God rather than obey him, all it really means is that you don't know God. You don't understand that he loves you, that he wants best for you. See, when I will do anything to not have to obey God, okay, if I'll do any kind of religious practice to not have to do what God, I know God's asking me to do, that means that I don't understand that he wants best for me, that obeying him is joy, that obeying him is the best, It's a lack of trust in who he really is. It's like the story of the rich young ruler. You guys know that story, right? He comes to um, Jesus and he asks this question, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, go and sell everything that you have and come follow me. Now, it it makes it clear in the story that this rich young guy was actually pretty religious and pious. He had done a lot of things uh, for Judaism and he was actually not a a bad guy by... um, by most people's standards, and he's sort of at a crossroads here where he can either obey and trust God that Jesus actually has something for him, or he can choose to say, I don't think I can do that. He says he went away sorrowful. He didn't believe that Jesus had something better for him than what he was asking him to give up. He didn't believe it. The other reason we love sacrifice over obedience is that sacrifice puts us in a position of bartering. Okay, o- obedience actually admits that we don't have a position of bartering. Okay, let me, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, when, I, when I give God a sacrifice, right, do something for the Lord to get something from the Lord, it puts me in this position where I'm saying, God, I'll give you this if you give me that. Okay, I'll give you my life if you give me something else. Okay, uh, how many of us have ever done that before in our lives where we say, Lord, if you'll just give me this, then I will be so faithful to you. Or Lord, if you'll just make this stop hurting, or if you'll just uh, save me this one time, then I'll give you everything, right? We've all done that before, but the problem with that is, is you're putting yourself in a position of bartering, where, where you think God is in heaven saying, oh yeah, I'll do anything for Sam's life. Oh, you want to trade? <laughs> okay, give me your faithfulness, and, and then I'll give you what you want. That's not true. That puts us in a position of bartering with God. That's religion. Religion says, God, I want to earn your favor by doing something. That's bartering. That's bargaining. The Christian understands the gospel is that we have nothing to barter with. It's all God's. It's all God's. We don't serve him to feel right with him. We don't serve him to appease our pain. We don't sacrifice so that he'll do good things for us. We do it because he's given everything for us. We sacrifice because he's already given everything for us. So what does this sacrifice of fools look like today? I want to kind of try to make this practical for us. Um, I think for a lot of us, it's, it's attending church. It's something as simple as that. I think a lot of us feel guilty about our sin. Uh, we feel guilty uh, about whatever it is in life, and we feel like, okay, if I go to church twice a month, then I don't need to feel guilty anymore, okay? Um, which is totally a misunderstanding of church, right? Uh, for some of us, um, it's... Uh, I feel less guilty when I'm, when I'm serving or when I'm tithing. For, for some of us, uh, I, feel less serving, I feel less guilty when, I, um, uh, when I, you know, I'm, I'm serving my neighbor or I'm helping or whatever it is. I just, I just want us to think about that tonight. Like, what is the purpose in what we do for the Lord? Is it like Saul? Are we trying to bargain with God? Are we trying to purchase not feeling guilty? That's religion. 
Guilt makes religion. Christ has paid for everything. We get to worship. We get to serve. We get to give of ourselves. We don't have to. A few questions you can ask yourself to just try to identify if if false religion has crept into your life on this. Number one, do you try to keep your spiritual um, piety or discipline at the forefront of your mind? And what I, what I mean by that is when you start to be like, oh, like, am I, am I saved? Does Jesus love me? Well, yeah, because I serve. Well, yeah, because I give to the church. Well, yeah, because I, I attend church. Those cannot be the reasons. Those cannot be the reasons. If you think to yourself, how do I know that I'm saved? If you reach for what you've done, you are in religion. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that you should reach for what he has done for you. We do not serve, we, we do not come, we do not attend, we do not read our Bible, we do not pray so that we can feel favor with God. Those things should come as a byproduct to what he's done for us. And the second thing, if you look at verse two back in Ecclesiastes, the second thing that he points out in false religion is this. He says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So he's he's making a connection here of how to see and how to spot false religion in prayer. Okay, So so not only can we see it in what we do and, and how we serve and how we act, we can spot false religion in that, but we also see it in our prayer lives. Uh, false religion or false religious prayer, uh, you do it for one of three reasons, okay? Either you, you pray in a false way, either you do it to impress um, God, okay? So, because we, we all know that if you pray in King James and you use words like justification and penal substitutionary atonement, that God's very impressed, okay? That's religious prayer. When you're praying in such a way that God, I just really want to sound like I, like I know what I'm saying, and let me assure you, he's not impressed, okay? Or false religion, you pray to impress others, Okay, pray to impress others. Um, this is something I struggle with, okay, because a lot of what I do is in front of people. Um, a lot of what I pray, when I pray, is, is in front of people a lot of times, and, and it's extremely hard for me to not think about what people are thinking of me, about me when I'm praying. It's really hard, let's be honest. I'm thinking thoughts of like, okay, I want this to be deep, okay, this has got to be good, but, and, and, then, and then I'm like, but don't be fake, you know, make it, make it real. Okay, okay, pray. pray. I mean, it's, seriously, it's, it's really, really hard, but I would say that the vast majority of my prayers sometimes when I think about, why am I praying right now? Am I trying to impress God with what I'm saying? Am I trying to impress people around me? The third reason is a lot of people try to impress themselves with the way that they pray. They try to, to feel better about who they are because of how they pray or what they say. Now, Jesus spoke to this in Matthew 6, if you guys remember, in verse 5, he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. 
So he's basically saying simplicity. You don't need to pray long prayers that are complicated and sound really theological. He, he goes on to give them the example. He says, pray like this, and you guys know it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Simple, okay? Very simple, very to the point, very authentic, very genuine. A quick way to tell whether you're dealing with or struggling with false religion is to say, what does my prayer life look like? Who am I trying to impress when I pray? Uh, Leonard Ravenel, this was a cool quote uh, that I found today on prayer. Actually, Jeremy pointed this out to me. He said, uh, He says, prayer grasps eternity. It doesn't demand a colossal intellect. It doesn't demand a vast vocabulary. It's simple. It's honest. It's raw. Okay? Some of the people that are, could not be farther from the Lord, lost and strangled in false religion, probably pray some of the deepest and most theologically astute prayers that there could be. But God cares about authenticity. Now, why does this matter? Okay, this matters, and the reason I even wanted to talk about this is because prayer is one of the few spiritual disciplines that actually kind of shows us what our relationship is like with God. Um, You know, I could say all I want about how much I love my wife and how much I know my wife and how we're close, but if you see us hanging out sometime and we're like super awkward and I can't even talk to her, you're gonna question that a little bit. Like, how, how do you, what do you mean you know your wife? What do you mean she's your best friend? What do you mean you guys love each other? You, you can't even have a conversation. Prayer is a very good way to tell, am I stuck in, in hypocritical religion or do I really have a relationship with God? Because if I have a relationship with God, then the way I talk to God will be relational. It's not gonna be just going through the motions. It's not gonna be just repeating whatever, you know, regurgitated thoughts that I've had. It's going to be, honest, it's going to be real, and that's what God wants from us. Uh, I thought this was another cool quote, same guy. Um, He says, if you want to know how popular a church is, go Sunday morning. If you want to know how popular a preacher is, go Sunday night. If you want to know how popular God is, go to the prayer meeting. (laughs) I thought that was kind of sad, um, because usually, if you guys know this, but Usually there's like four people at prayer meetings. Um, you know, if we had a prayer meeting, there'd probably be four people there and we'll have six or 700 people on a Sunday. And what that says is, is, is that people are great doing things, you know, for God and with other people. But a lot of times the hardest thing that we find to do in Christianity is actually talk to God. But the reality is, and you guys have heard this before, it's not religion, it's relationship. In prayer, is one of the most intimate things we can do with the Lord. It's, it's actually talking to him. It's actually hearing from him. And what basically um, the preacher is saying here in Ecclesiastes is he's saying, you can tell. You can tell false religion by what your prayer life looks like. It also matters, okay, what our prayer life looks like. It also matters because prayer is one of the only spiritual disciplines that allows us to see, like I said, allows us to see what, God um, sees in our hearts. So basically, when you pray, it really allows you to see what God sees. Have you ever had that happen? Like you're praying and you're really getting into an honest prayer, not just like babbling or rambling off Christianese or whatever, but you're honest. You're letting your heart out to the Lord and you begin to realize, wow, I didn't even know that was in there. I didn't even know I felt that way. (laughs) I didn't even know I was insecure about that. I didn't even know I struggled with that. Prayer allows us to see what God sees. Perfect example of this is in Luke chapter 18. 
uh, when Jesus gives this example of two men praying. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, the other one's a tax collector. Uh, The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector next to me. So one of the guys just begins to spew out this prayer of pride, and he's completely religious. He's thanking God that he's not like the guy next to him. And then the guy next to him pipes up and prays, uh, the tax collector standing afar off wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And what's happening here is prayer is revealing the heart of both of these men. Through prayer, you're seeing the pride and the, the self-reliance of the Pharisee and the humility and the repentance of the other. When we pray, a lot of times, what's in our heart comes out. What God sees in our heart actually comes out. Probably one of my favorite prayers in the Bible is the thief on the cross. It's just completely honest, completely simple, and really what he wanted to ask God. Have you ever thought about, like, what would our prayer lives look like if we actually said what we wanted to say. Not just what we thought God wants to hear, which is hilarious, because he knows everything. Not just the words that we think we should pray, you know. Not just the, the, the King James things that we've, we, we, we recite or, or, or whatever, you know, big Christianese words we want to use. But if you were really raw and honest before God, I wonder what our prayers would really, uh, would really look like. Thirdly, verse four, and this is, uh, this is the third A, which... Might have, been, might have been a stretch. I was like Googling A words today. Like, I like really want these all to be A, and it was kind of stupid. Um, the third one is, is uh, ardent commitment. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> so stupid. Um, no, I looked it up. Ardent, it's like really, really committed. Um, verse four, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Flip with me real quick to Acts chapter five, verse one through six. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Whew, that's a good morning devotion verse. That's like the one you're like, can we put that in the Old Testament? (laughs) This is like it belongs in the New Testament. Um, So the reason I took you there, okay, uh, our, our, our third point, 
Religion, okay, a sure sign of religion is this idea that I purchase my own salvation. This, this need to commit more than you can actually give. False religion is all about overcommitting but yet underdelivering. And here we have a story of Ananias and Sapphira, okay? They want to appear like they've given everything. And a little bit of context is the early church, Jesus has come, he's risen, uh, the, the early church is booming, all these people are coming in, and one of the first things that they do, which is really amazing, is they all sell everything they have, they put it into a pool, and they begin to just take care of each other. They just live in like a really tight community financially. So Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, they really want to look like and be part of this, this thing, but the issue is they don't really want to give up everything that they have. They want to be part of it, but they don't really want to give up everything they have. So they sell their land and they give some of the money to Peter and to the apostles and say that it's everything, but really it's not everything at all, right? It's really not everything at all. Now the interesting thing about this is the issue with that wasn't that they didn't give enough, okay? God didn't smite them because they didn't give Enough. It's not like, oh, you, did, you only gave 30% of your land? Well, you're, you're gone. Okay, that wasn't the point at all of this. The reason that it went so bad for them was because they chose to act like they did. They wanted to look like it was authentic, but in reality, it wasn't authentic at all. This is the perfect picture of religion. Religion says... Everything exterior looks like I'm serious. Everything exterior looks like I mean it. Everything exterior looks like I want it, but on the inside, I'm really holding back from the Lord. I'm not really giving him everything like I'm saying that I am. And people that are stuck in religion are carrying a burden and a weight. And that weight is that they have to look on the outside like they really are serious about the Lord or serious about their religion, when on the inside, they know that they aren't. On the inside, they're dying. On the inside, they're dry. On the inside, there's no real life there. And so they carry this weight of having to look constantly. Ananias and Sapphira came bearing a weight, and that weight was, hey, look, we're religiously pious. Hey, look, we sold everything we had, and in reality, they hadn't. That's the sickness of religion. Religion says, I can do it. And when I fail, no one can know it. I can do it, and when I, when I fail, nobody can know it. Now, we can't look at Ananias and Sapphira and say, man, they blew it. I would have. I wouldn't have. Because the reality is, none of us are really all in. None of us are really honestly giving God every part of our heart. None of us are really honestly giving God every part of our life. None of us are completely trusting God with our kids and completely trusting God with our marriage and our finances and our money. All of us, okay, if we're honest, all of us are holding back something. But, but the difference between the gospel and religion, listen to this, the difference between the gospel and religion is that the gospel allows you to be okay with that and be honest about that so God can fix you. Whereas religion says, I can't let anyone see it. Religion is Ananias and Sapphira saying, no one can know that we don't want to give everything to the church. It's okay if you don't want to give everything to the church. I don't want to give away all my money. I don't want to give away all of my life. I struggle with it every day. But religion says, well, I just have to look like I do. I have to make sure everyone thinks that I do. And that's a burden that you and I can't bear. The gospel is that God wants to meet you right where you're at and change you into what he wants you to be. The primary difference between believing religion 
and believing the gospel is your willingness for God to find you where you're at. Are you okay with God seeing you where you are and then growing you? The religious person, person refuses to admit failure. The gospel person knows admitting failure leads to embracing God's grace. So how do we combat this practically? The first thing I would say is to get real about your inability, your inability to deliver, okay? Religion is religion means it's people trying to deliver for God, and they can't. They can't. The gospel is understanding and realizing that I can't do what it takes to get to the back, to the top of the hill. I can't do what it takes. I can't do what it takes to be good enough, to be holy enough. I cannot do it. The gospel starts with realizing that I need him to carry me back up. When you're in a place of humility to realize that you are basically useless on your own, that's when God can begin to use you. When you realize, God, I don't have anything to bring to this relationship. I don't have anything to bring. I don't have anything to barter with. I don't have anything that's really worth you using. Uh, The only good thing about me is him. The only good thing about me is you. And God, when you're not involved, it's horrible. When you're not in the picture, it's horrible. So, how do we avoid false religion? Just look at the last verse and then um, verse uh, six. For when dreams increase and words grow, many there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. Is that six or is that seven? Okay, verse seven, I lied. Um, For when dreams increase and words grow, many there is vanity. What the preacher is saying here is he's saying when things get complicated, they're vain. When religion gets complicated. And this is like the number one, (laughs) I keep saying that's the number one. Um, I can't say that with everything. This is one of the easiest ways to identify religion is it's extremely complex. Ever notice that about false religions? Extremely complex. What did the Pharisees do? They took God's commandments, they took the law, and then they built more complexity around it. And then they took that and they built even more complexity around that. They said, no, it's not enough just to obey the laws. You have to obey the laws that we put around the laws to keep you from breaking the laws. And then we'll put another layer of laws around those laws to keep you from breaking God's laws. They were so worried about man breaking God's law that they made it extremely complicated. They made it extremely hard for anyone to understand. It's kind of like making a game that you made the rules and you really like playing the game because you know the rules, but no one else does. The Pharisees were good at playing their game because they made the game. They invented the rules, and this is false religion at its core, right? It's man saying, I don't want to play your game, God. I don't want to know who you are and what you say and and live by your rules. I want to create my own, and I want to make it so complex that it frees me and crushes others. That's religion. Frees me and crushes everyone else. It's exactly what the Pharisees did. Now, going back to the story that I opened with, here you have Jesus, you know, in, in the, the disciples in the boat, and uh, they just have this interaction with the Pharisees. So I know I'm all over the place tonight, guys. I apologize, but bringing it back to that opening story. Um, Jesus is in the boat with the Pharisees. Jesus is in the boat with the disciples. They just had this discourse with the, with the Pharisees where they're, they're, they're attacking and they're jabbing and all these things. And as they're getting in the boat, Jesus says, I need to warn you guys. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And what's so interesting is the disciples' response. They go, oh no, he's mad at us because we didn't bring bread on the boat. 
They think because he's talking about leaven that he's upset that, oh, we forgot to bring bread. The one that just multiplied bread out of thin air. What's really interesting, and, and Jesus caps off that too by saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What's interesting is they're completely proving his point. What is the leaven of the Pharisees? It's this idea that you get to go to heaven because of what you do. That's the core of false religion. Okay, that's the DNA of false religions, self-dependence, self-reliance. And what the Pharisees were doing is they were, they were uh, relying on their own wisdom, their own religious piety in order to get to heaven. And Jesus is in the boat telling them to watch out for that. And meanwhile, they're like, uh-oh, we blew it. They're proving his point. Their concern proves that they're still stuck in religion, that they're still allowing the, the leaven of the Pharisees to affect them. They still think that God's going to be mad at them because they forgot bread. And they're completely missing the point. Jesus is like, don't you guys understand? You're free from that. That's not how it works now. It's not about whether you remember to bring bread or not. I am the bread. I'm here. I'm what you need. So, the preacher concludes by this. First of all, by, by saying, keep it simple. When people try to pile complexity onto things, keep it simple, okay? Keep it simple. Uh, I'll confess something to you. I, my notes are so confusing to me tonight. Yeah, and you guys all look really confused too. So um, give me a mulligan, okay? Um, but I, I, complexity sometimes just really muddies things. All I really wanted to do was come up here and tell you guys the gospel, and, and, I, and I overcomplicated it, and I've had a really hard time following that. When, when, when things get too complex in a way that's not healthy, that's where false religions start. Don't stone me, okay? Um, that's where false religions start. When people begin to say, no, 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 it's not just Jesus. It's Jesus and this and this and this. It's not just Jesus, it's these four things. You gotta do these four things. It's these five steps. It's, it's whatever it is. It's adding complexity and burdens and bondage and yokes onto people by saying that, that, that somehow um, the gospel is not as simple as it is. But it's, it is. It's Jesus. Okay, all I'm trying to tell you guys tonight in a very complicated way, all I'm trying to tell you is that he is our righteousness. He is our hope. Okay, it's not you. Coming to church is not going to fix anything. It can help only because it points you to him. Serving is not gonna fix anything. It can help only because it's gonna remind you of him and how he served you. That's the point. That's all that matters. That's the gospel. And he sums up the whole seven verses by simply saying, God is the one you must fear. And what he's saying by that is that all of the religious practice in the world doesn't matter if you don't put God on the throne of your heart. That's all that matters. If you don't make him God, if you don't let him be God, if you try to be God in your false religion, then None of it matters. Solomon, who was the wisest man of his time, he didn't really get that. <laughs> he didn't really get, he, 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 he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand that we can't even fear God because he doesn't, Jesus hasn't come yet. I can't even fear God the way that I'm supposed to. It's not like he made it very simple and I still can't do it, but Jesus did for me and Jesus has given it freely to me, Amen. All right, let's all stand together and, and pray. And uh, I want to give you guys just a little bit of homework. Um, if you would, 
Go ahead and take a look at the rest of chapter five. We looked at the first seven verses, and the problem with Ecclesiastes is it's, it's kind of all over the place. Um, it's really hard to, to condense into one teaching. So look at verses uh, eight through um, 20 this week, maybe in your time. It talks a lot about work and toil and, and, and wealth and a lot of those things that we've talked about already. Um, so it'd be good review, but there's some killer verses in there. So read that on your own, check that out. Um, and uh, next week, we'll jump into chapter six. So Father, I just... Oh, Lord, if there's even one little thing someone could take to be encouraged uh, to follow you tonight in that, I just pray um, that it would happen, Lord. We just need you so badly. God, you are the only good thing truly in our lives, Father. And so, God, we love you. We just um, give ourselves to you. We pray against false religion. Lord, we pray that in this church, God, that um, we would be those that truly depend on you for everything, Lord that we would not for a second think that we can achieve somehow heaven apart from you. God, we just, uh, we truly do need you, Lord, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Sorry it's a little early, guys, but uh, have a good evening.